welcome back to Poem Peeps. We have July 1st just around the corner. So I know Furf and I are so excited to be welcoming all the new interns, the rising senior residents, and you pulmonary critical care fellows. So if you're um, around and you see something interesting, make sure to tag us at Poem Peeps and follow us on Twitter. So we're also gonna be coming out with some new initiatives um, this summer. So stay tuned for that. Furf, how are you doing though? I'm doing great, Monty. I, you know, I love this time of year. Obviously it's always nice out and uh, you know, enjoying the weather, but also new people coming in. It's the medical new year, which I always love. And I really like the new meeting the new interns, meeting the new fellows, but also the rising residents and fellows who you see, they realize how much they've learned in the last year when they when their replacements come in, which I really love. I also am on parental leave right now, which I am very much enjoying the warm weather. So it's a good time of year. Monty is APD. I know you must be very excited to welcome all your new fellows. Oh, Ferf, I'm so excited. Um, I got to meet a few of them in person at ATS just a few weeks ago, and it's just so amazing. The excitement is palpable. Um, you know, I think it stays with us. I think, as you said, it's a, a new academic year. I'm just really looking forward to a lot of things coming this July. And on that note, you know, in addition to preparing folks for their new roles in medicine, today we wanted to address a profoundly important but often inadequately addressed topic. Inevitably in medicine, specifically in the ICU, Perf and I spend some of our inpatient time. All of us encounter end-of-life situations and building up a background and skill set to address this appropriately is truly fundamental for critical care doctors. Yeah, I totally agree, Christina. I feel like this is a, an area that I didn't pay that much attention to early on in residency, maybe even fellowship, and that's like almost all I pay attention to now. Um, and as I learned into it and did it more, I also got an appreciation for how much of a skill it is. I was like really um, uh, privileged to learn from some great palliative care doctors when I was in fellowship. And you just see, it's just a skill set like anything else. I mean, it takes empathy and it takes warmth and takes human connection, but it also takes training and deliberation and consideration. And so I'm very happy to be diving into this topic on Poem Peeps. So in order to explore more thoroughly, we are absolutely honored to have on the show today a guest who's really dedicated her career uh, to the end of life, to understanding the experience for patients and family and assisting them in the difficult times, and also to helping doctors who struggle with this. So we're welcoming Dr. Jessica Zitter. Uh, Dr. Zitter has her MD from Case Western University Med School and her MPH from UC Berkeley. She completed her IM residency at Brigham and Women's, her pulmonary and critical care training at UCSF, and is additionally board certified in palliative care. She's the author of multiple essays and articles that have appeared in publications ranging from the New York Times to JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, has authored a book, and is a documentarian who's worked on both Emmy and Oscar-nominated documentaries that we're going to talk about. I could go on and on, and we'll definitely talk more all about all of this throughout the show, but welcome to the show today, Jessica. It's a real privilege to have you on. Oh, so glad to be here with my peeps. Yeah, thanks. Yes, we love it. Um, before we dive in, our standard disclaimer, just a reminder, this podcast is not for specific medical advice, and the views we express today do not necessarily reflect the opinions of our respective employers. Yeah, Jessica, we're so excited to have you on the show. And Dave and I both had the opportunity to read your book, Extreme Measures, Finding a Better Path to the End of Life, as well as watch your one of your films on Netflix called Extremis. So definitely got to um, add that one to my recent Netflix queue, which was so just so wonderful and great to watch. I think I it was just really insightful from seeing that. So I hope many listening today will be able to check that out. But yeah, there's so many topics to cover. But to start... Jessica, I'm wondering if you could tell us what you encountered as a pulmonary and critical care doctor that led you to take an interest in palliative care at the end of life. 
Well, thanks for thanks so much for having me here. I'm I'm so excited to be able to talk to you all about the the travels that I've taken. Um, you know, first of all, I I was not particularly interested actually in palliative care. And don't forget, I'm a generation kind of ahead of you guys. And when I was sort of starting out my career, there wasn't a palliative care. This was in the early 2000s. Palliative care didn't become a subspecialty until 2008 officially uh, at the ABIM. So, you know, in the beginning, I, I really, young attending, I just wanted to save lives. I didn't want to think about the end of life. I didn't want it to come. And um, I loved the adrenaline. I loved the protocols. They kept me feeling competent and effective. Um, and it really felt safer always to focus on what I did know, which was the protocols, the machines, the procedures, then all of the things that I didn't. Um, and with serious illness, there, as we know, is tons of uncertainty, tons, um, and tons of emotion. And, you know, I could stay on track and avoid the uncertainty and the emotion uh, by honing in on the technology. And I did. And I, and I you know, I just felt competent. Um, but really, over time, and it was happening subtly, as I was focusing more and more on the protocols and becoming more and more expert um, and deferring to them so quickly, I found myself really getting further and further away from the human connection with my patients. Um, I actually, you know, now I refer to it as sort of feeling like a technician on a conveyor belt. I call it the end of life conveyor belt. I was feeling and relating to patients more as like widgets on this conveyor belt than as people. Um, and I'm, I'm not really <laughs> proud to say this, but I wouldn't have necessarily noticed this change uh, on my own, but by total luck and chance, I happened to be working at a hospital that had won a small grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation called Enhancing Communication in the Intensive Care Unit. And the, this team that would be eventually become a palliative care team, they would call themselves the family support team, uh, run by Pat Murphy, an advanced practice nurse, and Ann Mosenthal, a trauma surgeon at UMDNJ, um, really started to kind of talk to me. Like, what do you, did you talk to this family? Do they know what you're doing? Why are you doing this to this patient who's dying? Have you even explained that it's... Uh, and I would sort of brush them off a lot in the beginning. And one day there was this sort of culminating moment where Pat Murphy accused me of torturing a patient. I was putting a catheter into this patient who was really dying actively. Um, and I re at that moment, I was ashamed and mortified, but I kind of processed it over the next several days and realized that I felt she was right. I hadn't really talked to this patient about the implications of doing this or try to assess what was really in the best in the patient would want me to do. So once I sort of took this armor off and it was really hard because I needed that armor, I was sort of, there were so many feelings underneath me that I was terrified would sort of destroy me, fear and shame and anxiety. And, but I started to remove this armor and come out from behind these procedures and connect more human to human with my patients, with my colleagues. I found that I started to feel alive again. I felt more joy from my work. I felt less dulled. I had been feeling so dulled. Um, and I then went on to become a disciple of this movement that, that prioritized the patient and me <laughs> above all else. In reading your book, I loved um, the term of the end of life conveyor belt because I, I think we see that a lot where we kind of know where it's going and we can see seven steps ahead, but it's very hard to communicate to patients. It's important to communicate, but it, that that terminology very much resonates. 
And you mentioned this, you know, the worlds of critical care and palliative care are just intimately linked. A lot of people in the United States die in the hospital and a lot of them die in the ICU, or at least the process starts there. I, I know that that link hasn't always been the case. And you said it's a generational that's been development. Thank, I'm thankful that it's more and more a part of our training and a part of the link. I'm just curious how you conceptualize the partnership between palliative care and critical care and how you explain it to patients and doctors in training who may not have that link. They kind of see them as opposed some of the times erroneously. Well, first, uh, let me just tell you that, again, things that really have changed significantly. But in the early 2000s, a prominent chief of medicine in Boston, who shall remain nameless, uh, said to me, as I was getting more and more involved in palliative care, I think there's a conflict of interest uh, when an ICU doctor practices palliative care, as if those two things are somehow completely you know, opposed. Um, things have obviously changed a lot, at least on the surface, okay? I don't think people would ever accuse you overtly of the things that were I was accused of uh, in the early days when I started practicing palliative care. But I, you know, I, I really do believe that a lot of people in the specialties, in critical care as well, have remnants of those feelings of, um, of disgust or touchy-feely or it's less important or you're killing my patient or you're ruffling things and why are you bringing this up? We've got a plan. The patient's on the schedule, you know, and um, I really, I think that, that we really have to address that. There's, as we know, there's a hierarchy in medicine. Palliative care specialists are here. ICU specialists are here. There's hierarchy. And, and, and when you're a consultant, there's another hierarchy around that issue. But um, I think that we've got to really understand that there is a lot of problem. There's still problems bringing these principles of palliative care into the practice of intensive care. And, and by the way, I don't think we should even necessarily call it palliative care. I think, you know, I, I think this is about hum, humanistic care. It's about, it's about logical care. It's about collegial and collaborative care. These are the principles that the palliative care movement kind of put forward, but they are absolutely applicable and, and requ required in every specialty under the sun. We have to be human. We have to be communicating. We have to be collaborating. It shouldn't just be relegated to the palliative care world to value these, these, these priorities and philosophies. Yeah, that's so, so true. And I feel like I couldn't agree more. And, you know, I know Jessica, you mentioned there's there's variation in how we practice, but I think when I'm on in the ICU and as an intensivist, humanistic care is what I want to do, right? So I know that you were initially trained in pulmonary and critical care and then in palliative care after this, as you alluded to earlier. I'm just wondering how you think your palliative care training has changed or enhanced your perspective about the work we do in the ICU. Well, I mean, first of all, I love what we do in the ICU. I love saving lives. I love sending people home to their families. Um, I love the uncertainty in, at, at moments. I love the urgency of how we do it, the efficiency, the teamwork, and sometimes even acting without necessarily having to talk too much, but just doing what needs to be done. I love that. And I'm still, fundamentally, I'm an ICU doctor primarily. I, that was the right specialty for me. It's who I am. It fits my personality. Um, and sometimes, quite frankly, the work of palliative care is a little too slow for me. <laughs> I'm not really, I mean, if I had to figure out my nature, I would say I'm I'm definitely more of an ICU person personality than, than a palliative care personality, not to overly stereotype. Um, but, you know, now that I've gotten a chance to look at our world of the ICU from another perspective, 
Um, I really believe that we would benefit from bringing in some of these skills and priorities that are manifested in, in that world of palliative care. Like, for example, we tend to dismiss as non-ICU the, the concept of slowing down and questioning and, and reflecting on our feelings uh, and creating spaces of psychological safety. You know, we, we tend to think more sort of battlefield, like, you know, got there's it's always a rush. There's never time. You know, there's always time to have a conversation in the ICU. I mean, I can have a service of 12 people. And for those patients that we need to sit and have a conversation, and, and this is partly because I have, as you said, David, I've gotten, I've practiced, I've honed the skill of communication, but there's always time. And it's, it's, it's not something that is non-ICU. So I guess what I've learned, um, in, you know, is, is, is that I think there's a lot of things in our culture in the ICU that I think we need to question and we need to re-explore. And I think that the, the world of palliative care, we don't need to uh, adopt, we don't need to be palliative care doctors, but I think that some of the principles and philosophy are, are things that would do us well to approach and think about. Yeah, I think that a lot of people's practice could benefit from that. And, and certainly it seems like something you learned on the job. And I think that's an experience a lot of us have had. And a lot of ICU doctors then take that learning and incorporate it into their own practice, right? I'm going to be a little bit more centered than this. I'm going to pause and have a conversation. However, it sounds like you went beyond this, right? You've really become a true advocate for thinking about how people die in America. And I'm curious what led you to move from being a person who just says, I'm going to take these palliative care principles and incorporate in my own ICU practice to taking more of an active advocacy role and turning to writing and, and things along that line. Well, like so many other things in my career, I didn't set out to do it. I really just set out to be a doctor and that was what I was going to do. But I've always relied, even as a young girl, on storytelling to process complex emotions and, and difficulties. And I would write, I had these journals that go back to when I was like seven or eight and they're hilarious, but they process, you can feel them processing emotions. And so I would write stories, especially as I was starting to encounter more and more of the types of things that we all encounter every day, the challenging, painful, emotional conundrums, the ethical conundrums that we deal with in this work all the time. And I would, I just couldn't keep the stories inside of me. I had to express my distress. And frankly, I wanted to communicate the stories to other people and find community. And it was only after I started writing first, again, for, privately, and then I'd start to publish here and there. Um, this was, in the, again, the early 2000s when nobody was talking about this stuff. And it was pretty taboo. In fact, the first article I wrote, I was called into my boss's, the ICU director's office, basically to get got reprimanded for about 45 minutes for, for talking about what happens in the ICU. It's sort of like, you know, we keep that silent. That's not something we publish in the New York Times. But after I did start to do this and publish and write, I found this huge community of people like you guys and like, you know, lots of, I mean, many, many nurses in particular, but even ICU doctors who wanted to share their experiences and who were moved and empowered by the sharing of stories. I mean, I felt like I needed to do it for them uh, and to keep growing this community of specialists who don't want to keep doing business as usual. Also, honestly, you know, I want to put my money where my mouth is. Sometimes when you write it down on paper, you know, when, when proverbial shit hits the fan in the ICU, what do we all do? Even those of us who have the best communication skills, we all go back to the end of life conveyor belt because it's easier. It's safer. And 
when I have stuff written down on paper, it's a consistent, a constant reminder to me of how I want to practice. I believe me, I don't do it perfectly at all, but it keeps me a little closer to the place that I want to be. You know, and I want to just mention that storytelling, my storytelling, whether it's in the form of essays that I write or films, documentaries, or, or podcasts, which I like to do, fall, falls into this concept of the narrative medicine tradition, which started in the year 2000 at Columbia Medical School. And um, it was basically this concept that if you use stories to teach healthcare providers, healthcare professionals, originally it was for medical students, um, that you, and, and the data is very clear, you enhance empathy, you enhance communication skills, you enhance comfort with difficult topics like death, uh, you improve uh, provider self-confidence. And so that, a lot of the work that I do and that I can describe to you after is in the sort of the narrative medicine tradition. The problem with narrative medicine is it works great, but most of the people who get exposed to it have chosen to opt in. They've chosen to opt into that type of learning. They're not, they're not, you know, the people who might benefit from it the most, who often don't get exposed to this medium. And, and that's, that's why we're starting to use films more. Oh, I love that, Jessica. And I think you said, I mean, these are concepts and topics that we need to be talking about. So uh, I guess thank you for your bravery that you had um, when you when you said when you first started this in the early 2000s, and really that concept of storytelling, you know, and you mentioned you have several articles and books I alluded to this a little bit earlier, I know that you really started to using the power of film to explore some of these topics. And I mentioned Extremis earlier, which is available on Netflix, and which is a really great show to watch. But you have two other films as well, Caregiver, A Love Story. And you have a third one that's uh, forthcoming called The Chaplain of Oakland. What drew you to film as a medium to explore these topics? Well, uh, the theme is the theme of the day, but honestly, it was kind of an accident. So for all of you young doctors out there, just plan for your careers to kind of take some twists and turns if you're open to it. Um, I was not ever thinking of myself as a filmmaker. I was, you know, I was just getting used to the idea that I was a writer. I was coming to the end of writing Extreme Measures when I saw this film that had been filmed in our hospital called The Waiting Room. And we went as a big hospital staff and watched it at the Grand Lake Theater. And I watched this film and it was about access, you know, insurance access to emergency rooms. And it was really powerful. And I realized just in that moment of watching that film with all these people, I could see the buzz and the audience and all these healthcare providers talking to each other and really being inspired and really moved. And I said, oh my God, you know, if a, if a picture's worth a thousand words, you know, a film is worth a thousand books, you know? And I realized that like we needed to make a film about the stuff I was writing about in extreme measures. And in fact, some of the stories in extreme measures are in the film and some of the things in the film are, I mean, there's, there's a, there's a crossover between the film and the book. And so I went and I looked very hard and wide it took me about a year to find a director to come and document the stories that we all know so well in the ICU. So this director finally agreed to come in and I was shocked as none of my colleagues uh, would be in it. They refused except for one who then later regretted it and tried to pull out, but she didn't. So Monica Bargava, my dear friend is in the film with me, but, um, you know, it was really exciting. It was, you know, the film did really well. It went to the Oscars. It was, it was very, very exciting. But what was really exciting to me and what I was completely unprepared for was how it went viral 
in the healthcare community. I was invited for three years and it would have gone on longer if the pandemic hadn't stopped it. I was just invited all over the place to screen it at grand rounds and this and that and, and medical conferences. And um, I didn't even have any kind of programming around the film to talk about it. I had to create it after it was coming out with this demand for, for viewing. And I realized the power of using film to change culture. I realized that it was a way, for example, in Extremis, there's so many little clips that you can use to show concepts of like the fear of conflict with your colleague and how that impacts your behavior or the fear of being wrong. And what if we're wrong? And what if we're, you know, and how that impacts your willingness to tell people bad prognoses. All of these things are so beautifully outlined in this sort of character driven sort of screen experience that people really get moved and it can, it, it can foster conversations about really tough topics that we don't tend to talk about. And particularly when you have what I call a vulnerable narrator setting. So like I'm willing to put myself out there as, you know, the explorer who doesn't really know what's going on and who does things wrong. And that is what I find invites other people to join me into a conversation that's vulnerable and honest and frankly healing. Um, we've, We've done really uh, pretty robust programs with my book um, uh, that, that have been really well received by large groups of physicians, honestly, physician staffs, where we, we take stories from the book that are really provocative and kind of painful, and they're hard for me to read, honestly. They're painful to share with people in public, but we do it, and it's interesting to watch these groups of, of, of doctors who, like, at first, no one's talking, and then with this sort of vulnerable narrator, they're willing to follow me into my discomfort. And then eventually all sorts of stuff comes out. And the responses we've had have been so powerful. Like we need more of this. We need, and, and, you know, we are now trying to figure out how we can create those kinds of experiences with film and with the book and with other kinds of storytelling that we're going to bring out. It's so interesting to hear you talk about it because the very powerful mediums. I found myself, even myself, reading the book and watching the movie and dedicated to this, having my own range of emotions. Like there are some stories, I think, because they hit so close to home or they hold up a mirror where you're like, I don't know. I don't know if I'm like that or am I? And then, and then as you're listening more, you're like more and more engrossed and you kind of couldn't stop talking about it. And you've alluded to all the positive emotions and feedback, and it's very easy to see why once you read the book and, and watch the movie. I'm sure you've also alluded to barriers that still come up and different reactions that you must get. So I'm curious. Oh, sorry, Tom, you have questions too. I'm curious what other types of reactions you've had, you know, when people are listening to it. And if there's been any that have raised for you, like, oh, this is a barrier I hadn't been thinking about that I want to tackle again. You know, people are seeing your work and then um, uh, some reactions they've had to it where you're saying like, oh, that's so interesting. That's something I want to get to next. Oh, well, I mean, you know, I, I'm constantly learning. I mean, I, I think, first of all, just coming, honestly, coming on the podcast was a little nerve wracking because, you know, every time, especially talking to ICU doctors, I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm saying, oh, this is the way ICU doctors feel. This is my experience as an ICU doctor. It's a jumping off point for everyone else to talk about. And you might totally disagree with me. Please don't say that I'm an idiot, but like, like, let's open up a conversation and uh, you know, let's let's talk about about different perspectives and different. I I'm constantly learning things from other people, and 
Oh, okay, that's an interesting way to think about it. So I really think that it's really about, about the conversation and about the exploration and about the psychological safety that I think is what we've got to bring more into the spirit of, of critical care if we're going to really be able to practice the best medicine that we want to. Oh, that's so important, Jessica. And I think in addition to your initiatives that you said, and I, I mean, well, one, I just love the fact that you said, right, just, you're just opening and starting conversations. Um, and you welcome comments and different ideas and suggestions, because that's what makes us better in the end. In addition to your writing and films, I know that you've also started a border media company called Real Medicine Media. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about the mission and structure of that. Definitely, definitely. Well, it's following in a sort of a more formal way on the work that I've already been doing, which is essentially creating and telling stories in a variety of different media and then bringing them to groups of healthcare providers to promote discussion, reflection, and culture change. We just started officially Real, R-E-E-L, Real Medicine Media, uh, which is our nonprofit that has two arms. The first arm is storytelling, as I've mentioned, and we're currently, as I said, actively working on the chaplain of Oakland, which I'm happy to tell you about in a second. And we've got lots of other storytelling projects that we're going to be doing, but all all of which use sort of a verite style of character-driven storytelling so that it's something that, that hopefully is emotionally connecting and priming and that it's not a talking head it's not didactic it's it's real live people doing real live things that we as particularly critical care uh, doctors are going to relate to and and be and be moved by so that we want to sort of explore further the other arm in addition to creating these stories and telling these stories is to then bring them in some form and we're talking about the format uh, as we speak, really, to audiences of healthcare providers. I am particularly interested at Real Medicine Media in focusing on specialty physicians. And we're going to start with critical care, obviously, because that's what I know. Why specialty physicians? Why bring these, these stories? Which, by the way, the stories that we tell, we want them to go to Netflix. We want them to go to the Oscars. We want them to, we want them to be powerful enough that they're going to be consumed by lay audiences. But then we want to take the stuff back in process in a in a way that's going to be helpful to our community of healthcare providers to help us be who we who we want to be and have more of a of a, of a, an experience uh, that is more more emotionally uh, satisfying and frankly intellectually satisfying uh, than what we have currently. Why why specialty physicians? You might ask. People say, but well, if you talk to lay people, that's where you're really going to get change. Get people to demand better care. I think it's the specialty physician, in my opinion who is probably the biggest lever for change in enhancing the experience of the end of life for, for the consumer of healthcare. And I think that in some ways, this specialty physician, I'm talking about us, is also the one who's at most risk of burnout, disconnection from work. We know suicide, alcoholism, I mean, all of this stuff, critical care doctors are at a very high risk for these things. And I care about us. I care about us. I don't want to be any, I don't want this to be about wagging fingers. I want this to be about empathy for us too. We cannot provide the best care if we are not healthy. And I think we're not. I think we're not. I know because I know myself and I know what I've gone through and I know still the kinds of pressures that I face 
in this work. So I hope that answers your question. No, that let you, yes, that was great. And you definitely answered the question. And, you know, I think through, through the media that you're using, it really provides an avenue for some educational content for those that are either watching, reading, or listening. And as you know, here at Plum Peeps, we're all about medical education. And I think palliative care requires training just like any other field. And there often there's a lot of variation in what type of education is provided in um, current traditional training programs. And we even talked about this in one of the sessions I moderated at ATS recently about, you know, how has palliative care training evolved over the last few, you know, years? And we talked about, you know, incorporating simulation um, into the training that, you know, current trainees and house staff and fellows are receiving. But Jessica, I'm interested to hear your perspective on how you think palliative care education has evolved, I would say, like over the last maybe 5, 10, 15, 20 years? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I mean, uh, as, as you've heard my in my trajectory from the early 2000s, there was no palliative care. So this is so new. And, you know, then when people started hearing about it, after you explained how to spell it, you know, they still looked down on it. And there was sort of a, there was a disdain. I mean, there was a sort of a, oh yeah, they're the touchy-feely people. And now I see, I mean, really there have been, there has been a generational shift. Now we have residents wanting to round with us uh, on most of our months, which is really exciting. They're much more interested in what they do. They see a value. They don't necessarily know what it is, but they see a value. They see, and, and frankly, I also see young you know, young surgeons or young, you know, young residents in, in, in other specialties, specialty physicians who come up to me and say, gosh, you know, I love what you guys do and I want to be part of it, but it's, it's hard, you know, in the surgery department, it's hard. And the, and the fact is there's a lot, you don't have to go. And they, they'll say to me, well, maybe I should go do a palliative care fellowship. I'm like, no, no, this is not about going and getting more palliative care physicians to get siloed into some other little area. We all need to embrace these principles and feel supported. So, you know, I wrote an article once, uh, I don't remember what journal, called the American Society for Patient-Centered Physicians or something like that. And it was about this, a surgical resident who was like, well, maybe I should go do a palliative care fellowship. And, and saying to her, no, you don't need a palliative care fellowship. You need to be the number one, the best surgeon you can be bringing all these principles that you've learned from us into surgery. And you also need support to do it because you're all alone. You're flailing around out there by yourself in this department that does not understand you. And you're the only person. And I know what that feels like because that's how I used to feel as an ICU doctor uh, who did with, with colleagues who did not understand or care about palliative care. And so I think if we can figure out a way to make this culture change, not just in the ICU, but all throughout medicine so that we're not just calling it palliative care it's 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 something different it can't if we just call it palliative care we're siloing it again and that's not helping us i think that's like really great i like i feel like the lesson that this is something to complement your skill set not something that oh you'll just bring in the expert or you have to become an expert if you're interested at all that it can be added on to any skill set that you have is super important and a super important lesson but here's the thing about the skill set concept yes there are skills and there's definitely basic skills that every single physician should know that have to do with pain management and have to do with communication you know basic skills you don't have to be an expert if you need an expert you call the palliative care people but it's more than skills here that i'm talking about i'm talking about culture change because you could have the best communication skills and you're not gonna use them if you're in a culture where you feel alone and at risk 
for expressing the things that we all need to be expressing and for questioning things that we all need to be questioning. This is a real, this is a culture piece. This is not even just about the skills. Skills are important, but they're only a small piece of it. It's, it's fundamentally going to the top and saying, we must, we must question things when, when the case is, when there's uncertainty, we must take that patient off the trach schedule. If we're not sure if this is the right thing to do. Uh, we need to support each other in, you know, in, in our, in our insecurities and our fears and our, and, and, and we need to get away from the shame, blame stuff. And we need to call that out and stop it when, wherever and whenever it happens, which is all the time, you know? And I, so I don't know, culture piece is really critical and I'm not sure how to get it. And I don't think the palliative care movement has the answer to that. That's great. That's great. I mean, you've kind of answered this question, but I have a tough question for you. So I hope that's okay. But so, I mean, I think you're totally right in nailing something is that you can always teach a skill there here or a lesson there, but questioning the culture is how you get progressive change that sort of builds upon itself. So I know you're working on this already. If you're omnipotent and you have all the doctors in America all together in a room, then you're approaching this new curriculum about uh, humanistic care, not end of life or palliative care, humanistic care. What's the first lesson? You know, is there, what do you ask doctors to do to start that cultural change? You know, people are listening right now. What can they do right now to sort of start that process? Yeah, well, thank you for asking. That's what we're trying to do at Real Medicine Media. As I said, we've actually, just yesterday, we, I, I think we're going to take the word palliative care out of our mission statement. I think we're going to frankly, you know, take the word end of life out. I, I think what we're really going to be trying to do is sort of deep cultural reflection and getting people, even those who don't opt into the narrative medicine or the humanities, getting people to be willing to engage in that conversation because of what they've seen from our storytelling, that the storytelling is going to be you know, speak to them directly and invite them into a conversation that they need to have, that they want to have, that they will want to have, even if they don't realize it yet. And the way I was invited into that conversation by the palliative care movement, but I, I no longer think it's the palliative care movement that's going to really be successful in getting people to have that conversation. I think films will, films that move people, films that stir people, films that help people see themselves and all the conundrums that they face every day in their work and, 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 and all of the, 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 the painful experience of being, feeling afraid of being left out of the tribe and that people are going to reject you and people are going to think you're, you're not trying hard enough, you're not smart enough, all that stuff that we face every day in our work that impacts all of the things that we do and all of the ways that we feel we need to start looking at. And I think film is the vehicle to do it. Yeah. And I think um, Jessica, as you said, right, there's been some culture shift, but not, not everyone has quite shifted yet um, to, I know um, some of the, the concepts and beliefs that you see, but I think that you, one of the important things that you mentioned is just, you know, the important skills um, that we need, as you said, some are just basic, you know, communication skills and understanding how to, you know, optimally manage um, pain control. But for the other things that you're talking about, how do you envision teaching those types of skills to healthcare providers as part of the work that you're doing? Well, and I think that some of this stuff has, the, some of this work has to be done in smaller groups. I don't think that big group kind of discussions around this one are, are necessarily, you know, the first thing. I think having buddy system, having having a, a person who you really trust, who you can, who can, who, who knows the language of psychological safety, 
is really key. And then, you know, whether it's a colleague or, or somebody above you in the, in the sort of the training world, just sort of setting that sense of you're safe. All of your feelings are safe and okay. All of the things that you're feeling ashamed of telling me, they're okay. I felt them too. I have felt them too. And once you've created that kind of understanding, I think that that's when people's best selves start to come out. Yeah. So this has been a very enlightening conversation. Uh, we only have a few minutes left in this podcast, but I know this will just be the start of a dialogue that we can continue. But I was hoping you could just tell everyone, our listeners, about other opportunities that are available to engage with your work uh, and other ways that they can continue uh, after they stop listening today. Absolutely. Well, first, I would, I'd say, please, please, please sign up for our newsletter and follow us on social media because we have lots and lots of stuff coming out. We've got a film that's going to come out soon that I think is going to be really, hopefully very powerful and helpful for all of us in terms of understanding racial inequities and understanding our own sort of how, how implicit bias plays a role in all of our brains. And I think um, just sort of starting to look at that will be important. So I'd love for people to follow us. Go to real, that's R-E-E-L, realmedicinemedia.org. Um, and you'll find details for following us on social media and signing up for our newsletter. We also, I'm happy to come speak. I do a lot of speaking at organizations. We have lots and lots of presentations that either go with films and screening films or uh, with my book. And you can also, again, look on our website to figure that out. If you want to screen our films, again, Real Medicine Media will let you know. If you want to get a copy of Extreme Measures, we just go through our website or you can go to bookshop.org or Amazon or wherever they sell books. And, uh, and I look forward to engaging with all of you um, as we go forward. Jessica, I'm going to sign up for the newsletter as soon as we have finished recording today. And maybe as one of our final questions, I want to ask you, what are you going to be focused on in the next few months? Well, we are wrapping up production. It's, you know, wrapping up me. It still means it's a year away uh, on the chaplain of Oakland. And we're really excited to, sh to share that with everybody. Again, it's, it's looking at racial inequities through the eyes of my friend, mentor and colleague, chaplain Betty Clark. Um, we're also developing a very large impact campaign, both sort of national and also specifically directed at specialty physicians uh, to help take this story to, to audiences and make, and make change. And again, as we know, physicians make an outsize, uh, have an outsized role in the treatment of patients at the end of life. So I think this topic is really something that we want to share with the physician audiences. It, by the way, for our pilot program using the Chaplain of Oakland, um, we're going to be looking for partners uh, to test um, some of our curricula. So if people are interested in that, reach out to us. Well, that is incredible. It's been a great 45 minutes. Jessica, thank you so much for coming on the show. And thank you all for listening. We'll certainly have more content around this field coming up. And definitely check out uh, Jessica's writing and films. They're, they're uh, quite incredible. Tune in in two weeks for our next episode. Uh, this episode was written, produced, and edited by myself and Christina Montemayor. And the music's original music by Eric Rogers. And we'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.